Welcome to the Upper Left Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Anderson, and today on the show, I am joined by Anthony Donskov. Anthony has been training elite hockey players for the past 16 years at his facility, Donskov Strength and Conditioning, out of Columbus, Ohio, where he also works with youth, athletes, and general population as well. Anthony has written two books on hockey as well, including Physical Preparation for Ice Hockey, written in 2016, and then released another this past year, the Game Go Grow Manual, Programming for High Performance Hockey Players. Both books are, in my opinion, must-read for strength and conditioning professionals. Um, I've enjoyed both of them. The second one was absolutely outstanding. I just finished reading it uh, this week and cannot recommend it enough for a very clear, concise way of programming a high-low model uh, for, ath- for athletes, particularly hockey players. Anthony and I discuss- had a great discussion, really enjoyed having him on the show, and he talked a lot about the process of writing those two books, what went into uh, writing the first one, and then how he continued improving upon his processes to write the second. Uh, we also talked about balancing training stressors in a hockey offseason, had a really in-depth look about as to how he goes about training his players in preparation for their seasons, be it for elite or youth athletes. Uh, we talk about the differences within training programs between those two types of athlete. Um, and then we also talk about conditioning for hockey players and had a really good discussion. I've been kind of going down the conditioning rabbit hole in my last couple of episodes, the last one in particular with Eric Schmidt. Um, we had a great discussion on finding kind of that, that middle ground of training um, and why it is important to touch that. And Anthony expounds upon those thoughts that Eric had uh, even more in this episode of the podcast. So it was really cool talking to him about that. Um, and then, we, of course, also we talk about the differences between skating and sprinting. Uh, and then, of course, too, how conditioning off the ice and conditioning on the ice are not the same in a lot of sense, in a lot of senses, and how we see different responses from from athletes depending on whether they're on or off the ice. So that also puts us into a nice little wormhole of how useful is off-ice conditioning and when do we utilize it, how do we utilize it, and uh, what, what is the best course of action for all of that. So really fascinating discussion with Anthony talking about all those topics and more. Um, I'm really appreciative for him making some time on a Sunday to come on. Uh, and we had what I think was one of the best discussions I've had on the podcast to date. Um, and I really appreciate his, his knowledge, his expertise, and it really shown forth throughout the full hour. Um, it's rare that you get someone that's so dialed into his craft and so intense and intelligent uh, and possesses kind of all the things that you need to, to run a really sound strength and conditioning program. So for anyone out there still looking to kind of, including myself, who's looking to tighten things up in terms of their programming and and decision-making as a coach, this podcast is definitely for you. So without further ado, let's get right to it. Anthony Donskov, ladies and gentlemen. Anthony, thanks so much for joining the show, man. I really appreciate your time and uh, and hopping on the pod to to chat a little bit. Um, Honestly, I wanted to dive into just your process of writing writing books. Uh, First off, I thought it was real cool. I've read uh, all the first one and most of the second one, I'm still getting through the, the second one and I enjoyed both of them a lot. So thanks for putting your thoughts out there. But, uh, I really wanted to get into your, your head and your process. What, what made you start the first book and just kind of how was that process for the first time going through it? Yeah. Um, it was, uh, it was an interesting process. I think, uh, I learned a lot from, you know, from writing both books. Uh, I gained a lot of wisdom, um, several years back from a book from Stephen Pressfield called The War of Art. Um, and the first page of that book uh, kind of hit me and, and, and smacked me right in the face. It was a, a good reminder of, of that the process is probably worth more than the prize. 
And the quote went something like this, and I'm going to kind of go off. Uh, it's not exact quote, but he said, there's a difference. Uh, there's a secret rather that real writers know that wannabe writers don't know. And the secret's this, the writing part is not the tough part. The difficult part is sitting down to write. And what prevents us from writing is resistance. Uh, that resist resistance can come in many different uh, facets. It can come from, uh, you know, infatuation with social media. It can come with, um, uh, you know, job, it can come with other, uh, you know, other uh, uh, priorities. Um, and, and what he argued in that book was that you have to force yourself to write. Um, so I challenged myself to do that. I, I was an incessant reader. I still am. And I, I love to take notes when I, when I, when I, when I read. So I had that going for me that, that, that so I had to set up a process to write books and my process was going to be, will be different than everybody's because everybody has a, a different lifestyle. Uh, first of all, I had to figure out, am I a, a lark or an owl? When do I get my work done? And when do I get my work done the best? It's from trial and error for me. My brain is very, very sharp in the early morning. Uh, if you ask me after three o'clock PM to do something that takes a lot of critical thinking, my brain is more mush at that point. So I'm going to get my work done in the morning. So I figured that out early in the process. And then I said, okay, how can I fit this in? Um, again, this is where lifestyle comes in. Uh, you know, everybody's different. I'm, I'm not married right now and I don't have any kids. It's myself and my dog. And I thought, okay, I have to be at the gym early. I'm going to force myself to write. Well, I've got to set my alarm for uh, an hour or two earlier. Uh, and that's what I did. And I just carved it down. It was the aggregation of marginal gains one day at a time. Uh, I'd set my, my, my iPad or my, excuse me, my iPhone to, to one hour. And it was a harsh cutoff at an hour, uh, whether I wrote two sentences or whether I wrote, uh, you know, two really good working paragraphs. And from there, it just kind of layered and, and went, uh, uh, you know, day by day and it started building a manuscript. It's actually the same process that I used in writing my second book. So it was just finding out when I got good work done, uh, identifying those times, forcing myself to write, which I've said before in this, uh, I'm speaking with good friends and colleagues. To me, it's a very lonely process when you write. Um, you're your worst critic. I mean, you might write a paragraph and look at it and say, this really sucks. You know, this is not, this is not good writing or, oh my gosh, like I'm going to feel exposed when my, when my, when my colleagues or people of, that I, I hold in high regard read it. But there's a beauty to that as well, right? I mean, you learn from your written word. You're always subject to change your mind. It's what you're thinking in that uh, in that moment. And it's at the end of the day, just a temporary theory. So I like sharing things. That's how I that's how I set the process up though for writing the books. Did you do you go back and look at how long ago was the first book? It's like six years now, something like that. Yeah, I mean, I think it. They said 2017 was the first book, but the reality was it was written, you know, probably 2016. <laughs> Um, and then the, the, the manual, the Gain, Go, Grow manual that I wrote, that was uh, more of a, um, that was more of uh, my ideas at the present, at least with our pro population. That was one that I, I didn't take nearly as long to write, believe it or not. I had the idea. I sat down, pen to paper, um, and kind of crafted that one out a little bit more. Uh, you know, that was released just uh, January of, of last year. And, you know, I finished that book probably in five months four months. So it's a little bit more fresh, but yeah, there definitely is a process where at times, you know, you can have that book uh, uh, published and ready to go. And you're like, dang, wow, I've changed that. I've yeah. changed it. <laughs> That's what I was job. gonna ask you. I was gonna ask you, like when you look back on that first book, like what do you think about it now? Like if, you, if it crosses your mind? Yeah, you know what? Uh, definitely, do we do things differently? Sure we do. Um, I think that's the beauty of what we do. Um, 
I think too, like the, the deeper you get in this field, if, if you're in science for long enough, you realize that even in the best of times, it's an educated guess, right? Um, it's a, it's a temporary theory. It's a hypothesis. So, um, yeah, I would say that if I look at that now, there are certainly some things that have changed. Uh, is it something I look back and, and cringe? No, it's not. Um, is it something that I'm happy to explain? Should the question be asked, Hey, do you still do it this way? And, and if not, why not happy to ha give a further explanation as to why we may have changed our mind. Uh, I think there's two things when you think about a theory and this comes from uh, Karl Popper, one of my favorite philosophers. You know, there's two ways to have a better theory. Number one, it's better explained. It's superiorly explained. I always love listening to people, really smart people, give their explanation as to why they do what they do. What's the existing literature that they use and, and what, what have they found with their specific demographic from like in the trenches training? So you provide a better explanation and it's tested, right? You have to test, you put it to, to, put it to use. And, and if you find you know, more often than not, you're not getting the results you want. You got to move on to something different. So to me, that's what we do as practitioners, regardless of what book you read, it's a temporary theory. And chances are, if it was written a long time ago, there are certainly things that the author may have changed in terms and measures of, uh, you know, their, their thoughts on, on certain issues. Well, if it hasn't changed over six years, right, maybe, maybe we need to rethink what we're doing, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Good point. Um, uh, so I'm, I'm curious now we'll shift a little bit more over to the training side of things. And, um, I just kind of want your bird's eye view of, um, essentially like the typical demands facing the population that comes to you, uh, be it in sport life training, just kind of a, a bird's eye view before we dive into some of the particulars I wanted to ask you about. Yeah. Um, can you rephrase that? So I, mean, I want to make sure I understand the question. So for us, uh, uh typically, obviously we're looking at when it comes to, we have multiple uh, sectors of our business, obviously the biggest being our athletic population and specifically the sport, which is much more a niche for us is hockey. But are you referring to the hockey players at Washington? Yeah. Hockey. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, we'll, we'll, we'll keep the discussion primarily, I think on hockey for, for all of us. Yeah. And then what are the typical, uh, just the uh, typical demands? Like, so for, yeah. for example, I think one of the main focuses I wanted to have was just looking at a player that comes to you in the off season. It could be it could be at any level, could be youth, could be pro, whatever, but just kind of the general demand, demand you're seeing on these players, like particular, particular needs before we dive into anything like too, like too, uh, too specific at this point. Well, I think uh, if you look at our, our, believe it or not, it's scary to say this, but if you look at our pro demographic in a non-COVID related season, you know, you're looking at National Hockey League, American Hockey League players that have 82 games, right? So that's a large schedule. That's a ton of hockey. Um, the scary part is, is if you look at, um, you know, our U18 or U16 or U15 teams at the AAA levels in Ohio, um, I mean, their game schedules, you would be surprised. There are many NHL seasons, right? Our, our U18 teams play over 65 games a year. Oh, wow. Uh, we, keep, we keep the metrics on active days. They have an active day every day of the month for the entire season. That active day may be a practice, that active day may be a game, or that active day may be a, a structured strength and conditioning program. So the first thing you're looking at is, oh my gosh, like these guys have a considerable amount of, um, you know, uh, load placed on them when they walk into the gym for the first, you know, the, the first training block of the quote unquote off season, that load obviously can be the demands, the wear and tear of the game, uh, overuse in terms and measures of areas, uh, that, that may show up for a hockey playing population is overused and understrengthened, And it may just be, you know, just 
chronic fatigue uh, uh, from uh, uh, an immune inflammatory, et cetera, et cetera. So those are things we take into account immediately when we're looking at our demographics. So obviously we're not just going to turn the microwave up to a hundred, you know, the, the oven up to, to, to 400 degrees and start baking. We're going to, we're going to slow build that process. Uh, we do that with our, our first block of the summer, which is very atypical for us. It's more of a long, we call it our tissue remodeling block. It's a block where we use a lot of um, uh, isometrics, uh, short, long approach where we're really fo focusing on overused muscles in a lengthened capacity and underused muscles in a shortened capacity. It's almost the equivalent of yoga on steroids. Um, that block is specifically designed for that time of year because of all of the games that these guys play and all of the wear and tear uh, that they present when they come in, including at the youth level. So um, I'd say the number one thing we're looking at is obviously the, the demands of their sport and their schedule, which is even at the youth level, quite large. Um, so I am curious then about uh, the typical off season that you, you guys put out and you just touched on that, like in your introductory phase, what you're doing with tissue remodeling. And I know you mentioned uh, ISOs in your book and yep. stuff like that. Um, how, um, I'm curious, again, we, we, I work with basketball, predominantly pro basketball, and they're very, it's, it's very a transient off season for them. They're kind of in one place out another place. They don't really like post up here for an entire off season. So we're given an even smaller block of window to work with and kind of figure out what the best course of action is. You see the same thing with, with your guys, or are they kind of locked in when they come to see you for the entire off season? Great question. The first thing is the time depends, right? If, if, if we're dealing with a pro athlete and they make it all the way, um, you know, to uh, the Stanley cup finals, or, you know, we're obviously getting a much shorter window with them for the summer. Uh, conversely, if we see an athlete and they don't make the playoffs, we've got a larger time with them in the off season. Typically I'd say uh, we have, you know, Again, don't quote me on this, but I'd say that on a really, really, really short off season with our athletes, we may see them for 12 weeks. That, that's a really short, but it's going to be more like 16 to 20 weeks we have with our, our pro players, which um, when you look at the entire pie of, of the entire season is not a great deal of time, but it's a pretty good amount of time in the off season that we We'd get kill for that here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's a pretty good amount of time that we get um, to work with them um, as their strength and conditioning provider. The question that you asked is, is it more transient in nature? Meaning do they come and they go? I'd say nine out of 10 times they're with us that entire time. Now they might go on vacation or they might, you know, have, have obviously social lives outside of what we do may see the a manual therapist here and there, but the, the strength and conditioning is provided by us. Now. Yep. Yeah, no, that's, that's awesome. I, I think having that amount of time in the off season is certainly certainly great. Cause it allows you to kind of go through the phases you've outlined in your book and whatnot. And, yep. Um, yep. I, I am curious uh, with these guys, what would you consider a successful off season being for someone given the constraint of time and then where you want to see them going back into a training camp scenario? That's a good question. Uh, I think um, the, I think what we'd first have to do is define success because sure. Um, I think it really depends, right? If you're asking me to define success for a 12 year old athlete that just came in with zero training reserve and uh, zero training age, I'd say, wow, here are the KPIs that I'd like to see. And I'd like to see them climb considerably. When you're talking with an elite athlete who has had years and years of training age, a minimally important change might be a quarter inch of a, you know, a vertical jump. It might be, you know, 
uh, less than 0.5% body fat. I mean, those are your KPIs, but it's not like you're seeing those fluctuate up and down like a gas gauge on an SUV. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, they are, you know, consistent um, or slightly elevating. So we do track KPIs. We have failure filters in our programs. The goal with our pro population is to see those improve. Uh, how drastically? Certainly not as at the same uh, at the same capacity as we're going to do with a, an undertrained youth athlete. But n- nonetheless, we would like to see those improve. Those KPIs for us are the most important in terms and measures of what we feel correlate uh, strongest with with skating and the ability to perform on the ice. It's a team sport like basketball is. The best KPI is the game. Mm-hmm. Um, so we want those certainly to go and, and move in a, in a positive fashion. Um, how do we find what those KPIs are? Uh, we want to look at the research and the literature to see what correlates best with skating ability. We talk to our athletes. We make it a cooperative approach. We talk to their strength and conditioning providers as to what's being tested and what's not being tested, what they hold value in. And then we want to try to build a program and, and have those meshed in with the program. So it's not a quote unquote testing day. They're just being monitored while they train. Um, does that make sense? Absolutely. Um, I think, it's keeping it on the elite side of things, for example, yep. and your, your pro population. Yep. It's obviously you mentioned the, the, sched, the schedule and this during the season and the amount of input they're just getting, the amount of load they're getting. Um, and obviously you've, you've made it clear in your book and everything that you're trying to ramp things up to get them back and ready for the demands of that season again. Um, so when it comes to like the performance KPIs, for example, I, um, are you even concerned at the times if they don't really move provided that on the load side of things, things have been mitigated and they're ramped up and ready to go. And I know this is kind of more of an anecdotal thing than a, yeah, you know. it's a, it's a great question. I can tell you in all the years that we've done it with our, with our elite athletes, the KPIs move. And, and they, it, like I said, they, it's not nearly the, the variability that, that as a young athlete in terms of measures of where they would move. Um, and that happens for a lot of different reasons, but yes, I mean, you want to make sure that you've, you've got uh, objective feedback in the form of your KPIs, but, even more important is the subjective, uh, subjective feedback from your athletes in terms of measures. Are they excited to get back on the ice? Are they eager for training camp to start? Um, uh, do they feel good? Are our previous injuries in terms and measures of uh, any, any bangs and bruises fully healed, ready to go? So there's subjectivity, even in the best of times, uh, asking, simply asking your athletes how they feel, I think is, is really important. But obviously, uh, you know, bringing it full circle to your question, we definitely would like to, to those KPIs to be our error eliminators. If they're falling and, 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 and falling um, and moving in a negative trend, then we're going to start tinkering with our program to see uh, what it may be. And we're going to ask a lot of questions because, you know, our pro athletes, if you do the math, um, you know, our pro athletes uh, see us three days a week in the weight room at times. Sometimes they see us four days a week. You know, if you do the math, those are 90 minute sessions. What that's uh, four and a half hours the entire week. Uh, five hours out of 168 hour work week. So, I mean, you're looking at 6% of the week. So there's a lot of time to make decisions that are going to affect the way you respond in the weight room that happened away from the ice. We want to also make sure we do our best to certainly not uh, have a dictatorial approach, but get as much information on what's happening away as well. So the the hard work that they put in the gym um, can be, can be realized. Uh, So we'll have those conversations as well, but KPIs will guide us. They won't move nearly as with as much variability as the youth counterparts. And then there's going to be a subjective, uh, um, a subjective aspect as well with any coach athlete relationship. There always is. So 
this is another one here for you. So with our, our basketball population, for example, it is very hard to get them off the court for more than a day or two at any point in the year whatsoever. How often are these guys on the ice in the off season? Does it ramp up? Is there a period where they're not on the ice? How does that kind of work? Or does it depend on the guy? Good question. And I'm going to, I'm going to answer it by saying it depends, but now I'm going to give you more detail. I don't like when anyone says it depends. It <laughs> I depends. mean, you can always and, lead with that. And, That's fine. And then, yeah. you know, and then <laughs> tell me why it depends. Um, it, here's what I would say. I, 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 I stole this and hopefully I do it justice from Dan Pfaff. You look at this, um, these three tiers, almost like a uh, decades or uh, of training. Uh, you know, the first decade before sports science, before anything was the sport. How do you get better at playing the sport? You play the sport, right? Decade number two, sports science starts slowly getting involved. And they say, well, hey, how can we break the sport up? Can we do some anaerobic? Can we maybe do an aerobic component of it? Can we, can we kind of work the energy systems of the sport to make the sport better? So that's decade number two. Decade number three, my God, we, we can break the energy systems up. Now can we focus on strength and power and medicine ball work? Wow, that's unbelievable. <laughs> let's, let's do that. Let's prepare for the sport that way, right? The, the reality is that most people think everybody at the elite level should be down at the bottom, right? Medicine ball weights this. The reality is that the elite level to get better at your sport, you should be right up at the top playing your sport. Now, what does that mean? Because I know I'm going to make some strength coaches cringe here. Um, at the professional level, at the elite level, if you want to get better at your sport, you got to play your sport, right? So you better be on the ice during the summer. Now, I'm not, I'm not championing this idea of uh, conditioning skates. I'm not championing this idea of regimented, uh, um, uh, like you'd see in season practice. That's not what I'm saying. I'm, I'm suggesting skill work, and that comes at a physiological price. I'm fond of saying this, right? We as strength coaches, we'd never deal with a master pianist and say, hey, listen, take the entire summer off, focus on your finger strength. And guess what? In four <laughs> months, in four months, you're going to come back and I want you to play in the orchestra in front of a live crowd. You're going to crush it. That guy would look at you or a girl would look at you like you're crazy, right? Now, the reality is when you look at that, 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 uh, that hierarchical structure that Dan Pfaff created, again, I'm, I'm kind of um, giving it my own flair there the youth athletes should be down at the bottom. They should be with the weights. The, a, a, a simple strength and conditioning program can work with the youth athlete and an elite athlete in, in amazingly awesome ways, but for different reasons. The youth athlete, athlete needs variability. A youth athlete needs linear load. They need linear progression. They need to, to focus on fundamentals, right? So that's a beautiful, simple program. Linear periodization, uh, volume goes down intensity goes up. You're introducing a ton of movements. It's great. They need the touch points. They need to focus on athleticism, simple program for a pro athlete, right? They need to focus on their sport to get better at it. So that comes at a compromise. It's going to come at a frequency compromise. We might not see them as much as we do with our young athletes. Mm -hmm. It's also going to come from a simplicity standpoint. We want some, we want to be able to track load. We want to have consistent loading patterns, we want to be able to tinker and tamper with, 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 with um, minimal working parts. If you view a program like a scientific experiment, you got a dependent variable and you got independent variables. If you have too many independent variables, you never know what works and what doesn't. Yeah. So simple programs work for elite and youth athletes, but for very different reasons. So uh, to answer your question, elite athletes, less time in the gym, believe it or not, more time focusing on their sport in a skilled 
aspect, not conditioning aspect. Their programs are a little bit differently organized than a linear periodized program for a youth athlete. We might undulate their programs. We have what we call for our pros, a gain, go, grow approach. And I can explain on, upon that as, as we move here. But simple programs can work for very different ways. I think what we have to realize is that the more elite the athlete, um, in order for them to continue to excel at what they do, they have to practice what they do. And it comes at a physiological cost. We as strength coaches become less important. It doesn't mean it's not important what we do. I, I wouldn't be here if I didn't feel that way. I think it's <laughs> imperative. I think it's imperative that they have good strength coaches, keep their tissue healthy, keep them robust. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, I can use the sport of hockey. Um, if you want to improve at that level, You've got to focus on the requisite skills that got you to the big dance. I love it. I love it. I think um, let's take this a step further then. So you obviously they're going to have guys on the ice, you know, racking up some physiological load while they're coming in and seeing you. What are you doing to balance the two out? So for example, are you trying to keep the stress message, I guess, consistent on this, on the day? Like, so for example, your, your, I think was it the, uh, the game day is your max strength day, right? Yep. Um, is that going to be a day where you want them to also, you know, kind of pay a pretty high physiological uh, price on the ice too, to keep the, the message the same? Yeah, it's a great question. In a perfect world. Yes. We don't live in a perfect world. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we, we, we have, we have communication. Unfortunately, we don't run there on ice. Uh, they have skill coaches that do, which is great. Um, um, certainly uh, do our best to communicate that to the skill coaches. I think the most important thing for the listener to garner from this is this is skill work on the ice. This is, you know, stick handling, puck touches, shooting. There's not a lot of, at least at the onset, high load skating. So they're not, you know, it's not skating the lane. It's not uh, blue line to blue line skates. It's not, I mean, this is more flow based and it's more skill based, but yes, in a perfect world, what we're trying to do is complement, not compete. We do that uh, when this gain, go, grow approach with a gain day being, being more of a max effort method. We pair that with acceleration work. We pair that with larger impulse plyos, a go day being much more uh, stretch shortening cycle uh, in terms of the plyos. We do an altus rudiment series warm up where it's focusing on really short ground tag contact amortization phases. We're lifting things, setting up the gym aware for speed, although 1.3 meters per second will never match how fast, you know, 10 meters per second someone sprints, but we'll have the lasers that day. We'll also do sprint work. It's really based upon moving and moving fast. And then the grow day at the end of the week, strategically set for that. That's where the workloads are the highest. Our trim scores are the highest. Our trim per minute scores are the highest. We set that up literally by trial and error. I mean, I had those days organized differently before, um, before we started measuring some of this stuff. And I thought, wow, I'm, you know, these guys are getting too much of a load too early in the week. So we have it strategically set for the last day of the week. So they got 48 hours to rest, recover uh, before they come in. Um, again, that's how we would set it up for an elite athlete. If you think of it from a stress standpoint, um, a lot of my work in my brain is, has come from several people that have a lot to do with strength and conditioning and nothing to do with strength and conditioning and, and everything to do with strength and conditioning. Um, a lot of my mindset has come from Mladen Jovanovic, my friend, I call him the Serbian sensation, brilliant guy. <laughs> Um, he has really tasked me and his, his work has tasked me to read beyond exercise science into, into people like uh, Nazim Talab, into people like Ger Gigerenser, uh, fascinating books all on um, risk and mitigating risk. And the way I look at a, a good strength and conditioning program is the way I'd look at uh, uh, running a portfolio, right? I wouldn't put all my money in one stock. 
because if we screw up as if we screw up, that's a big mistake, right? So I view the gain, go, grow model as diversifying a portfolio. Now, does that mean if there's a glaring weakness, we can't tinker the program and focus on some of those areas, right? Absolutely not. But at the end of the day, um, that that program for the youth athlete where we might move, I mean, we talked about linear periodization where, you know, volume goes down, intensity goes up, um, where you have a traditional hypertrophy phase, a strength phase, a power phase, it, it's going to look a lot different for uh, a more elite athlete. Um, they're still uh, diversifying a portfolio. They're just doing it in different ways, if that makes sense. Um, so that's kind of a 30,000 square foot view, uh, uh, an overarching view on how we'd kind of design a program for an elite athlete. And by the way, none of this is new, which I outlined in the book. Um, it really was uh, an aha moment for me when I read an article uh, from Stu McMillan and, and Dan Pfaff was heavily involved in that article as well, at least some of his work. So it's like in the track community would call a three-day rollover program. Um, they use different loading zones for different days. They have different emphasis on those days, whether it's an acceleration, a speed day, or some sort of work capacity day. And I thought to myself, how can we make this digestible for our athletes? I really like this, uh, this idea of gain, go, grow, because it's really simple to understand for an athlete. Hey, today we're moving heavy things slow, and we're going to focus on acceleration. Hey, today we're moving fast. It's go, move, let's get going. Um, and then, you know, the last day of the week, guys, it's going to be, it's going to suck. I'm going to tell you right now, this is, you know, this is, <laughs> this is our grow day. Uh, we're going to lift sub-maximal weight for time. We plan to be exhausted here. We've got the rest of the week to, 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 to offload and, and, and recover from. So borrowed a lot of those ideas and then put our own flair, you know, the R and D analogy, Robin do right. Smart people do have, have some bad success in their sports. So I found a way to, to try to put a, a twist on that with the sport of ice hockey. And that twist for me really comes from, you know, understanding the biomechanics of the sport, the first principles of the sport. There's actually very similar to sprinting. There's some subtle nuances that are different. Obviously hockey's played on the ice. There's not a lot of friction on the ice, which affects propulsion, which affects movement. But um, can you take certain pieces, um, uh, understanding the game and, and, and build it into a program like this? And that's what I try to do in this manual, the game, go grow manual, which is literally right now, um, you know, you asked me at the onset of the call, if I've changed much, this manual right now, if you were to read it is, is very, very similar to what we're doing with our pros, maybe a couple things that have changed, but I mean, there are programs in there, uh, example programs. And, and, and some of those are, uh, you know, almost carbon copy of what we're doing yeah. now in the, in the way we're setting up the training. And the last thing I'll say, and I know I've gone on a month on a, you're on a fine. Mon no, this is great, man. Um, is <clears throat> Is, is I think uh, these, these programs as well, like once this tissue modeling block is done, there's a lot of consistency to these mesocycles. There's a ton of consistency. It's not like they go into a whole different block after that. Believe it or not, this mesocycle, obviously fluctuating intensities, certain areas of, of, uh, of the energy systems possibly may, 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 um, may change during the summer, but the micro dictates the macro. They'll, they'll run through that phase the rest of the summer. Now, again, exercises may change. Slight modifications on, on how we may load exercises. For example, if, if uh, you know, gain, go, and grow is push, pull, and press, it might be press, push, and pull the next. So those foundational patterns are getting taxed in a different way. You know, not, uh, uh, you know, go, it might be more of a heavier, slower lift on a, something like a deadlift, for example. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we're changing things. It's just very small changes. 
Um, and we're measuring because if you change too many things at once, you, you have no damn clue what worked and didn't work. Yeah. So that's what we've found with our pros. Believe it or not, people have asked, well, can you run that system in season? And we do do it in season. All we do is we completely hack off the grow day. They don't need work capacity in the season because that comes on the ice. Yeah, right? you're good to go. Uh, yeah, exactly. So they have a gain and a go, and then they'll have their games. And obviously volume may be cut off or you know severely reduced during that time. But the actual model um, works in season as well uh, with some slight modifications and alterations. No, I love that. Um, you make me feel bad about my portfolio too. I, I'm only a GameStop guy, so you know. <laughs> um, uh, um, uh, no, no, this is this is fantastic, man. I, I am curious. You mentioned the work capacity thing, and yep. this is kind of the rabbit hole I got myself into. While I was preparing for this podcast, yep. and uh, again, I'm just going to kind of bring up our situation. Like our guys are on the court so much, we do, we focus very little on capacity because they, you know, they already have it, especially for the specific task that is most important to them, which is playing in most cases, you know, obviously you have your one-offs that there might be a need for that. that and we, we focus on it here in the gym for you guys. What, what is kind of your thoughts on, on you overseeing any conditioning in the off season? Do you do that? Or is that you leave that for the skill work and stuff on the ice? Good question. Um, our, in our, in our model. Um, so the way, let me explain our model. So uh, again, caveat here to the listeners, we're speaking now for our advanced trainees, our, our, our pro players. So um, the way we've done this uh, in the past, and again, subject to change at all times, but we have that complimentary um, um, uh, training uh, means again, gain, go and grow. And during the gain day uh, would be an acceleration day volumes, traditionally pretty short there, uh, you know, six to 10 accelerations. They're timed, of course, um, our go day, which will be lasers are hooked up. Uh, we will have anywhere from on the short end, 10 at the long end, 30 meters work. Um, during the summer, we'll build that volume up to a total of 300 yards. And when I say 300 yards, I mean, that can be in the form of like 10s, 15s, 20s, 25s, et cetera. Is that a magic number for hockey players? No. The reason we've cut it at 300 yards total work is because we have other work to get done after that. We have approximately 90 minutes to do that. And as you guys are aware, when you're doing max sprint work, you need a plenty of rest in between to call it a 100%. max sprint. Right? Yeah. So we just want to make sure we're respecting their time. So, And then the last day of the week is work capacity. We talked about the difference between programs for a, a young untrained athlete and then a, uh, a trained athlete. One of the big differences I outline in the book as well is this idea of rest um, or regeneration. It takes much more uh, intensity to trip the homeostatic wire of a well-trained person, right? Little Johnny, might his one RM might be 180, uh, you know, uh, I'm just whatever exercise you want to put. For a pro, it might be 500 pounds. That comes at a cost, right? One has a bigger engine, you know, one is a Ferrari engine, one's a golf cart. If boats slam into a tree, the golf cart, you can get out and have a beer. If you're the Ferrari, you ain't walking out, right? One's that's got the, higher. That's the best I've ever heard. That's great. <laughs> like one's, that. one's got higher horsepower. Right? Yeah. So how do you give someone with higher horsepower? Well, when you know they're going to have to train harder, you got to give them those rest days. So the days that we don't see them. Uh, so if it's game, go, grow Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Tuesday, Thursday, 
are doing their, their tempo work or oxidative work, like their just uh, aerobic recovery circuits, like it doesn't have to be tempo work or uh, um, well, again, aerobic circuits or tempo work. And we'll build that volume up as, uh, uh, as the summer progresses and the weekend is theirs. We, we don't, don't program anything on the weekends. It should be rest and recovery. Um, we are trying again to, to communicate with uh, the skill uh, professionals as well that, that where they do that on the ice. But what we found over the years is that in the first two months that these guys are on the ice from a skill perspective, it's mostly handwork, shooting work, stationary shooting where they're not building a lot of large volume up skating and, 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 and uh, you know, stopping and starting and cutting and changing directions. It's much more flow based work. Um, that may change as summer progresses, as they start, uh, getting on the ice. Sorry, that's my dog. Start getting on the ice more. We may, we might hack things. Like we've, we've, we've hacked plenty before. Uh, there's times where, Hey guys, uh, nope, you're, you guys are on the ice Tuesday, Thursdays. We try to have them on the ice during their, uh, their tempo work, like where they, when they would do their tempo work, uh, I'd say the last, uh, uh, last off season, their tempo or their ice work got ramped up so much. We hacked both days. So it was just their ice work in place of tempo work. Now, uh, one thing we do measure, uh, we started measuring with one of our KPIs um, is we will measure trimp and trimp per minute, which is kind of an, an idea of, you know, uh, of, of, of load during a session, load per minute, and then overall load in the weight room. We're not able to do that on the ice. Um, so we don't get we don't get the big, huge global picture of overall load because we're not in the rink to have them using the technology, but we try to manage it in the weight room with what we have them doing. We know from uh, baseline work with our, with our heart rate system, Friday is going to have the biggest trim. Uh, the most intense is going to be, believe it or not, our sprint world, you not believe it or not, our sprint work trim per minute. That's, that's when our, our trim per minute score is going to be higher. For sure. And we'll kind of try to try to, uh, uh, to build uh, and uh, scale from there. But yes, there are, there are times when their work on the ice picks up, it start it stops being, being more skill work and it starts getting more conditioning in nature and we will just completely hack days. A best program is a program that's the most malleable. Having said that we were an AB type of coaching facility, meaning we got an A plan and a B plan. We want to stick to A as close to possible. If we're going to move to B, it's slight modifications uh, to that plan. If that makes any sense, it's not like a complete overhaul. You know yeah. what I mean? No, for sure. For sure. I think that's great. Now, uh, you referenced a study in the book that I found to be, that made me think a lot. And I want to get your thoughts like just yep. off this statement alone. So uh, I, hopefully I'm not taking this out of context with what the study was saying, but the on and off ice, uh, like anaerobic thresholds and VO2 max numbers were okay. different. And I don't want to say wildly different because I didn't look at the study very closely, but they were different. You're getting a higher response in terms of anaerobic threshold and VO2 max on the ice as compared to off the ice. What does that make you think about stuff you're doing off the ice? Like, what do you think when you hear something like that? Yeah. Holy cow. It makes me feel that I'm not that important. <laughs> Dude, sometimes yeah, well, I was reading the book. I'm like, well, damn, like, what are we here yeah. for? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, it, it's very different. There's a couple of studies that uh, one compares VO2 on ice and off ice. And it looks at, uh, um, it looks at the differences in, 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 in certain drills and, and if there's any kind of correlation to the two. Um, it's, it, it's crazy. I mean, you, you heard this term and you hear it in, in the hockey playing community as well. It's like, Hey, I've trained all summer, but I don't have my hockey legs. And then I don't know if, if you ever, if you deal with, with, with strength coaches that train that population, you'll hear that it's very, very, I mean, I've heard it. I got, I can't count how many times. Um, 
I, I wrote a blog post about it uh, regarding that, and it's it's interesting. Uh, it's uh, there's some there's some old research uh, um, in the '80s that talks about this idea of um, mitochondria um, and being laid down in the intent in the contraction type in which it's used, meaning like you know you can you can run all you want, right? You can. I'll give you an analogy. Like uh, I use this analogy as well. Like um, Lance Armstrong arguably one of the best VO2s ever, right? He ran the Boston Marathon. And I think he finished like 760 something. Like, is that because Lance Armstrong's not in shape? No, like he's in amazing, he's in amazing shape. He didn't train his body to run. And as a consequence of which his aerobic system, mitochondria, uh, the, 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 the intramuscular, uh, uh, the general uh, coordinative patterns of cycling over running, right? Yeah. Everything. But, but even at the, even at, in the, at the muscular level, um, uh, it, it, it's different. Um, and again, all, if, if, uh, if you have show notes, I can, I can, uh, I can give you, uh, the art, the research article, or you can link it to the, to the, the podcast. Um, I, 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 it's in, in, in transparency. It's been a while since I looked at it, but the take-home basis is like, look, you know, again, goes back to what I said earlier. You want to be a good guitar player. You got to play the guitar. Um, so do I think it helps? Of course I do. If someone does nothing the entire season and gets on the ice for training camp, but um, nothing takes place of the actual activity. And in this case, it's such a rare skill, right? Um, it's not like basketball. It's not like soccer it's not like uh volleyball like those are field-based sports there's going to be more carryover <laughs> into something like that than on the ice um so it, again does that mean that you don't sprint hockey players is that no it doesn't it just means that it's a different sport and and it might take a little while longer for them to recognize any kind of benefits from it until they quote unquote get their hockey legs back and that takes a little bit of time when training camp starts you know, you got to be back on the ice. That's why it should be a layered approach. In my opinion, if you asked me 10 years ago, I'd say, get off the ice. Are you kidding me? Overuse injuries over. I still feel that way for young athletes, but for elite athletes, you got to be smart about it. You got to dose it appropriately, but the skill work has to stay there. Um, eventually as the summer progresses and training camp gets near the intensity and, and the conditioning quote unquote on the ice, changes but the goal is to have your hockey legs day one i can tell you how you don't have them stay off the ice all year and then get back for training camp it's a different sport it's a different beast and uh again uh, any exercise physiologist could I, I would love them to uh uh to chime in on this or or, or, or point me in the right direction because i don't claim to be an expert when it comes to intramuscular but i want to say it has something to do with how the mitochondria uh, functions in at the muscular level, and it has to do with specific contraction type that's different on the ice than it is off the ice. It's that specific. But again, the, the question is, how do you prepare for that? And I think the best way to do that is continuous focusing on the skill of skating. For sure. Now, as far as physical qualities go, again, you listed a bunch of studies where it just showed very limited correlation between some of the physical qualities and then like, for example, draft status in the NHL yep. or anything like that. But from your own eye, like, obviously you've, you've been, you've seen a ton of athletes. And one thing that's kind of like sparked my imagination recently, like we work here with a bunch of like elite basketball players. I've only been here for a year. So I'm still kind of like garnering that eye for maybe that, that, that type of player that's a cut below those elite ones to kind of see like, what are the separating factors? Like, 
you know, is it a nature thing? Is it a nurture thing? Like, why, why are you not as good as this other player, even though you're quite good, you've been around the game in hockey for a long time. And, and what in your eye, what are, what are some things that are separating like those elite players, maybe from a physical standpoint from, from these, you know, sub elite or just almost on the cusp type players. Yeah, it's a good question. Well, if you, I, I will answer it in a sheer weight room way because the, the best way to do it again is yeah. Is it's, the, <laughs> ultimately, it's the tactical side of things. Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> but from my experience, um, you know, typically uh, the highest power outputs, um, and um, you know, up until recently, we've um, we've measured that um, with just jump mat. We have force plates now. Uh, which will start collecting data and, and making sure we have a little bit more of an objective oh, yeah. approach. Um, but, um, and with hockey, it's, it's different, right? It, it's, it's uh, force, um, you know, from, from, from stretch shortening or force from a standard squat jump where there's no stretch shortening. A lot of times what I've found in our hockey playing populations, you would be hard pressed. Like if I were to, 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 to show you the, the, the power output and the eccentric utilization ratio between maybe one player doing a counter movement jump, hands, arms akimbo, and a squat jump, they would look more similar than different. Like, they're, like it's not like you'd see, oh my gosh, like with, you know, his, his counter movement jump is an inch and a half taller than his squat jump. They're you know, almost- You know how wild this is because with our population, it is exactly, there's exactly. like seven inches of difference sometimes. <laughs> exactly. And it has to do with impulse. It has to do with the idea that you're on the ice. It has to do with that in order to produce force, you have to push perpendicular to the skate blade. It has to do with the fact that but you have a longer time to produce the force, right? So what I've found is regardless of squat jump or a counter movement jump, you've got a high uh, power output. It might, might be uh, inches jumped, whatever it may be, but there's very similar between the two jumps. I would say, Good body comp, very good body comp. I'm not a magic per like we have this in exercise science. Like it's, it's crazy. I, I felt victim to it too. Like I, in hockey, I don't know how it is in basketball, but hockey, this, there's this magical number of 10 below 10% body fat. And it's like, wow, where did that come from? Yep. We got where that did, too. <laughs> yeah. I always, I always ask like, where does that come from? Don't get me wrong. I think it's important. Like, look, Force equals mass times acceleration. Therefore, acceleration equals force divided by mass. You have a heavier player. It's going to be harder for them to accelerate. I'm not denying basic physics, but I don't think there's a magic number. Um, I'll tell you, when I look at some of the special players on the ice and then I look at their off-ice numbers, they typically have low body fat. Right? They take care of themselves. They're, they're more mesomorph in, in terms of their body comp. Um, so the power, the, the body comp, um, um, are, are probably two of the biggest. Now, also, um, uh, I, I would say, and this is not always the case. This is where it kind of gets slippery. I, I would say it's kind of uh, looking at our numbers critically. Like it's not always the fastest sprinter or accelerator. Uh, again, we've limited it to 10 yards at our facility because if we run any longer, guys will run through the wall. Like we have 300 square or 3,000 square feet. Um, weather is certainly a... a, a, a um, a game time decision for us to take our lasers outside in, in Ohio, but we've done that before, but some of our fastest guys, accelerators aren't always the fastest guys on the ice. Um, you know, um, is that due to the differences in skating or it can't, that would be, that would be my theory. Yeah. Uh, it's a skill and uh, it's a learned skill. That would be my theory. Um, again, uh, I don't know if that's the reason, 
Um, but I'd say the two biggest ones are body comp and, and, and jumping, like the ability to, to, to display, you know, large amounts of, of output. Okay. Nothing, nothing really on work capacity then. Like, I know that's kind of a vague term, but like just your size of your engine, being able to repeat efforts over and over again. Yep. I'll tell you, we moved away from, um, we, we, we don't test. I mean, I say we don't test. That'll be a, a component repeat sprint. Like we'll do towards the end blocks and our, our, our grow day, but we, that's not a KPI of ours. Um, you know, I don't want to have to run uh, that, uh, that metric uh, five, five times a, uh, you know, in the summer at the end of every muzzle cycle. Like I just, I don't want to have to measure it that way. I, I guess you could do it pre and post, but I, I think uh, when I look at a test, I think, okay, from my standpoint, what, how much, can I get really good information without wear and tear on the athlete? And for me, a great, a great metric for, for looking at overall conditioning is just body comp. So that has taken place of our quote unquote repeat sprints. Doesn't mean we don't do repeat sprints. We do. Um, but I would have to uh, uh, look at some other work uh, by some other uh, exercise researchers on that in terms of measures, if it correlates or if it doesn't. But from what I've looked at, again, from what I've looked at, I want to make sure I put a caveat there. I don't, I don't think it has a massive, uh, top. You got to remember too, with hockey, like, look, every time we talk about what correlates and what doesn't jumping and sprinting, that's just skating. That's not like hockey's more than skating. You know, like y- you've got to have something like hockey sense, right? Like here's mm-hmm. how I describe hockey sense. You know, here's, here's a person with really good hockey sense. I'll give you a good analogy, right? This is a funny analogy. I heard from a, a, a coach really, it was, it's hilarious. I still laugh. Here, here's what he talked about hockey tense, right? Uh, uh, you, you, you know, you got a guy that goes to a parking spot at a, at a grocery store and there's one spot left in the entire, the entire lot. And he finds it. Wow. He thinks the next day he comes back, the parking lot's empty and he can't find a spot. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's hockey sense. That's great. That's, sense. That's so, great. So, so, so you can have the fastest car in the world. But if you can't find a parking spot, does it matter? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I, I used to fascinate on this stuff. I still do. I still I don't think it's unimportant. I it's just there's so many layers when you peel back the onion um, that all we can do as coaches is say, okay, uh, we can, how how do you measure that? I, I don't think you can unless you're on the ice. My friend Fergus Connolly says start with the scoreboard and work backwards. Mm-hmm. Right. So I don't know if you can measure that. What can we measure? Well, what correlates the best? with skating ability for, for from what i've looked at at the research the best is the ability to jump and speed work whether that's 10 20 or 30 meters and even that and i know there's some awesome research being done right now um but even that is moderate to weak correlates yeah for hot so you got to do those because that's the, that's the best bullet we got in the gun yeah uh, do i think it takes the place of you know being an elite skater and practicing the skills necessary to be elite skater on the ice. I don't, I I think the best way you do that is you get on the ice and you continue to harness those skills. Now, when you watch the game, I'm going to kind of hammer this point like a tiny bit more when you watch the game. Yep. So I watch a ton of hockey. Hockey is actually my favorite sport. Ironically, even though I'm working with basketball players. So I've watched the game for a long time, but I I really don't think I have the eye for it. I was thinking about this and prep for the podcast. Like when you watch the game, can you see 
beyond the tactical, like obviously we know like some guys have the hockey sets they don't like, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a Caps fan. So like I, Crosby Ovechkin, like I can see the differences between the two players, you know? Yep. Um, but just from a simple like ability to be robust and repeat efforts again and again and again, can you like see a difference between some players or that is that all very homogenous across the league in terms of like that ability to just keep going shift after shift, game after game, et cetera? Yeah, I, I don't know if I could answer that question well. Um, I, I haven't collected GPS data to give you any any objective feedback. Yeah, but more of an I, I know I'm asking you straight up eye yeah. test. It's probably no. <laughs> yeah, but but I think if you look, I, I presented once, and and, and obviously it, it always helps to show really good players. I, I've had four slides uh, of Sidney Crosby, and I and I it's the old uh, you know Charlie Francis is said, watch the player, not the game. Watch his shift, and what you see is you know a lot of coasting, a lot of coasting. Boom, 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 short burst, two to three steps, more coasting, more coasting. Boom, 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 two or three steps, two or three steps, more coasting, more coasting. And you get two or three of those series, and then he's off on a line change. Now, there's a rarity where he might race for an, uh, you know, a puck uh, that, uh, you know, that, that's compromised of being iced or not iced. Like, there, there are always those caveats. But if you look at the game, you know, you've got to have a robust aerobic system to recover and you've got to be able to to display force quickly uh and get from point to a uh, to point b quickly so we try to train those qualities off the ice do i notice qualities like that with elite players that, that are able to do that and, and continue to do that as the game progresses i do um i also think it's important that when you're looking at players you also look at the situation on the ice right is it a power play is it a penalty kill um what time of the year is it um i think sometimes we might get infatuated with things like it's, it's, there's so many different components that go into it because it's a game full of organized chaos, right? So it's hard just to go by numbers alone. They do provide excellent um, uh, objective information in the form of of GPS, but I'm not qualified enough to answer those questions in terms and measures of, 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 of how it looks in an 82 game schedule or, or, or which guys do it real well based on the numbers. Yeah, no, for sure, man. That's still very helpful. Very helpful to hear. I I like that the more people I talk to and the more stuff I see, I always see that, you know, PCR synthesis and the aerobic system seem to work hand in hand uh, pretty much across the board. And I guess just to follow up on that point, because I, I get it. I think it's super important. It seems like that's exactly what you're doing with your model in terms of like establishing sort of a high low system with your, with that kind of stuff, that middle ground stuff though. Like I've talked to some guys before where they're just like, Oh, the middle ground stuff, you just want to stay away from it because it puts you in that, state that's hard to recover from and then you end up just running medium all the time you never express high outputs and and in my own training i've noticed like i've always done high low but i have no like as soon as i do something that's that middle ground i I can't my repeatability on is very poor so just kind of wondering your your overall thoughts like when is a good time to bring in like there's still a need like at least in my own training i've realized there's still a need for that middle ground work to be done yep uh we'll use it and typically we'll use if we're going to do middle ground work what will be towards the end uh, of the season, uh, at least the season that we get to work with the athletes because, um, um, you know, they're getting ready for the cusp of training camp. I always go back to that Tabata study, right? Mm-hmm. 20 seconds on, 10% off, 20 seconds. And they compare that to steady state work. And they found that, you know, uh, in six weeks, uh, you know, uh, they made, I don't know how what the, the gains were. Don't quote me on anaerobic uh, capacity, VO2, this and that. And then the last two weeks of the study, it plateaued, right? It plateaued. And everybody wants to use that um, as this idea to champion the use of, of, of a Tabata protocol, right? Tabata protocol. 
the reality is after those six weeks, the gains were marginal, if not. It's kind of a physiological ceiling or. Yeah, exactly. What does that tell me is like, well, shit, I I can, if I want to do some high input, high intensity stuff, I don't need any more than six weeks to do it. Like I can get a good, I can get a good response. It, it, It doesn't champion the use of that for me year round it champions the short use of that because i can get a good bang for my buck response from it does that make sense absolutely uh, so 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 to answer your question we'll typically do it uh three to four weeks uh and we'll put it on our grow day um and they'll it'll come in the form of uh, um, either uh, uh like repeat sprints where it's not just it's not just running through the line. It's, it's almost like a mini shuttle, if that makes sense. Um, it, it's not like a 300 yard shuttle, nothing like that, but they're still going to get in that quote unquote middle ground. Um, it's not true speed work and it's not true aerobic work. Yeah, no, that's, that's fantastic, man. Um, now I try to keep these things to an hour. So we only have a few minutes left. So we'll touch on this briefly. Uh, yep. I, we mentioned sprinting a little bit and I just want to do- dive in just a tiny bit to some of the differences you see between skating and sprinting, just general differences. And then I had one question about some of the bimodal stuff you were talking about in skating after that. Yep. Yep. So I think first principles are very similar. Like you look at uh, uh, sprinting, you look at skating, um, you know, uh, you're going to, you're going to increase stride length as you get faster, right? Uh, Step frequency increases as you get faster. Um, You're going to have in, in sprinting, you're going to have more, air time as you get faster because you drive in, in sprint in, in hockey you can have a longer glide times the big difference in hockey is this idea of the trunk segmental angle I, I believe in sprinting they call it your uh, your attack angle in hockey I call it trunk segmental angle it's the, the angle of the trunk relative to the horizon right in sprinting as you continue to, to get out of your acceleration phase you're going to start looking and getting vertical right that doesn't happen in hockey, right? You have to keep a low trunk segmental angle because if you, if you compare it to the, the mechanics or the, 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 the biomechanics of sprinting, it almost looks like you're stuck in that acceleration phase. The other difference being, obviously it happens on the ice, right? So you have to create friction to get going and then you rely on lack of friction once you get going, okay? How do you create friction to get going? Well, you got to have a, a, a very aggressive propulsion angle, skates relative to the ice, right? They're opening up much greater than 50, uh, 45 degrees and you're driving and stepping aggressively into the ice. As, as you start speeding up, right? That, that, that angle, that, that attack angle, the skate to the ice starts uh, um, uh, getting less wide. So your step width becomes less wide and you're relying on lack of friction as you move forward. So there's similarities. The other big, big one, right, is the the big the big motors uh, for hockey players are your hips, really specifically vastus medialis, lateralis, uh, and your glutes. Uh, obviously, there's going to be some some ankle stiffness that's involved, um, but for those propulsive muscles, you've got your big break in hockey, which is your adductor complex, right? You don't hear many hockey players uh, out for the season with a hamstring pull. Uh, in all the years I've trained hockey players. I think I've, I've maybe heard of one, you know, in, in sprinting, very different, right? When you're decelerating after a knee drive, uh, you you're using your hamstrings. So you've got, you've got a large eccentric stress on your hamstrings. 
Uh, in hockey, it's really the the the, the adductor magnus and the other accompanying adductor muscles. That's those are your your brakes during propulsion. You also need those to concentrically contract aggressively to bring your foot back underneath your hip prior to the next stroke. So, when it comes to biomechanics, you got to give those muscles love and 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 focus on ways of preventing. <laughs> What you're going to see is, is if you look at a lot of the issue, the injuries with hockey players, you're going to see hips, 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 whether it's pincer impingement, cam impingement, whether it's a, a pulled groin, which can literally really be menacing for the, the remainder of the season, right? Those small little injuries can, when, when your life depends on that for movement, it, it can cause a lot of harm. So there's a lot of similarities, differences, of course, minus the friction, the big one being trunk segmental angle, the big one being your drivers being your glutes and vastus, and, uh, and then obviously your brakes being your, your adductor magnet. So you've got to be uh, able to, to focus on some of those uh, areas that may be of concern to players in the offseason by, by working them in a way that, uh, that may not be taxed um, on the ice. We do a lot of isometric work for adductors. Uh, we do a lot of lengthening stuff uh, 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 via ISOs for, for hip flexors. We'll do some uh, calf stiffness stuff uh, as well for, for ankles. So uh, not super, super different, but different. Yeah. Um, you mentioned in the book, this is a kind of a, a just a one-off question, but uh, stuff, stuff about bi, sprinting becomes bimodal. So we see like, I guess, like a double curve, right? If we were to be looking at it on a forced time curve by stride four, is that something similar you'd see in sprinting or sprinting like, like that off the jump, do you know? Just great, great question. question. I don't know that. Uh, I, that's that. That would be. I'd have to. I'd have to, to, to speak with some of the sprinting specialists. Like might have to back. bring in uh, bring in Matt Jordan or Dan or something. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't. I don't know that. But the, the bimodal that I that that I'm referring to is when the skate touches when the skate comes down on the ice and then prior to toe snap. So there's there's, there's two. So I, I bring my skate underneath my hip, mm-hmm. and then as, as I as I propulse out and snap uh, and extend my quad. I've got that second, that second force peak. So there's exactly, two. exactly. Yeah, I don't, I don't believe that happens in sprinting, but don't quote me on that. Yeah, that'll be, that'd be interesting. I'm gonna, I'm gonna look into that for sure. And then my last question is: any, cor- any studies being done showing like correlations to certain, like, in terms of kinematics, like joint velocity angles that are um, showing strong correlations to faster skaters? Uh, great. So, like question. for example, just to kind of like paint a better picture for the listener, like. Here we have like a, I think it's like a, what a thousand NBA jumps, like basically like all measured out kinematically. So like knee extension velocity is probably the biggest kinematic factor playing into like a better vertical jump performance. Yep. Um, I will tell you this. Uh, one of the things I did uh, for my PhD candidacy exam was look at the some of the pre-existing literature on biomechanics and hockey. And what I found is there's some unbelievable literature um, of all things in speed skating. Now, is speed skating hockey? No, there are differences. There's subtle differences, but there's some masterful work done. One of which is EM, EMG activity, uh, joint velocities, et cetera. Where I would point the listeners is to a 19, I believe it's an 87 article by DeBoer, D-E-B-O-E-R et al., um, who's got all the EMG uh, activity. He talks about this idea of the limited knee extension phenomenon, which happens on the ice may not happen. Uh, he talks about the differences in jumping compared to what happens on the ice, uh, which is really important, I think, for strength and conditioning coaches to, to get an idea on. Uh, and in it, he also talks about um, um, you know, 
again, the question that you had posed to me, uh, EMG activity, what muscles do what, and then the velocities when they, when they do their work. That's uh, that, that limited knee extension one gets to me. I love, I love hearing yeah. that. Cause that's kind of something in sprinting that a lot of people are talking about right now too. Is like, I mean, you watch like Coleman and a couple other guys, like you don't see full knee extension on a lot of their efforts. Like it doesn't happen. So. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, I don't disagree. Uh, I think there was a big debate on that on social media. Oh. But <laughs> I, buddy Keir, I think got into one of those, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, once again, you want to get good at something, you got to practice it. Right. And, uh, and uh, uh, I, I know from my experience uh, with the sport of hockey, like I said, you want to be a good guitar player, you got to play the guitar. Anthony, thanks a lot, man. This has been great. Any, anything you want to pitch, social media, books, anything at all? Oh, guys, I appreciate your time. Um, I think you, you refer to the two books I have out. Uh, uh, if you feel inclined to take a look at them, I value your feedback and, and thanks for your time. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Anthony. Appreciate you, man. All right. Take care.